what you had encouraged me to do a few weeks ago is just to stay up here and not sing. Not because I, don't, I can't sing. I know everybody knows I can't sing. But, but I did it just to listen and how worshipful it is to hear God's people sing praises unto Him from up here for whatever reason. Good. Lord, worship the Lord. I'd like you to open your Bibles this morning to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to look at one very familiar verse this morning. Dig into it and see the blessings that God has for us in this verse. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. May the Lord cause this book to live before us today. And Lord, maybe you give us understanding and grace as we seek to worship you as you truly deserve. We pray in the holy name of Christ. Amen. Sitting in McDonald's this morning, overheard a person across the the aisle speaking about how this time of the year he gets so discouraged. It's a time of, of gloom and discouragement for him. I wish I didn't have to leave in the next few minutes. I would have loved to talk to that man. I wish he was here today to look into this Word with us. But you know, so often time, this time of the year does bring a time of heartache and gloom. And I think it's because we, and maybe as individuals or a society, we're, we're looking all the wrong places for peace and happiness. We're looking to the wrong person for peace and happiness. We may have in our mind's eye that I'm talking about the general run-of-the-mill people, that somewhere out there there's, there's a utopia. There's peace. There's joy. That Shangri-La may be just beyond the distant rainbow. If I can just find that holy grail and drink from that cup, I'll find life and pleasure. Why do people think like this? Because people want peace. They want happiness. And yet so oftentimes we look in the wrong places. That would have certainly been true for the nation of Israel. They were a people that the Lord had spoken to time and time again. And he, as He said to them way back in Deuteronomy chapter 30, God spoke through Moses and He said that I've given you My Word. I've carried you on wings as an eagle and I've, 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 I'm getting ready to place you in the promised land. Obey My Word and trust in Me, the Lord said. Believe Me. And the Lord said through Moses, it's not like I'm asking you to ascend into the heavens to find this peace and wisdom. Neither am I saying you've got to cross to the other side of the sea to find this wisdom. No, simply trust in the Word that I have given unto you. And we see in this particular text as well 
the whole context of Isaiah chapter 9, uh, a nation that is in turmoil. You may recall that by this time in Isaiah, the kingdom has been divided. In the north we have Israel, in the south we have Judah. There was division among even the people of God. There was factions and wars going on. There was no peace even among the people of God. It was a gloomy time. Look at Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 1. The Lord gives His people this glorious hope there. He says that nevertheless, the gloom, looking into the future, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed. As when He first lightly esteemed, lightly esteemed them. And He gives this promise that there will come a time that the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, that would be the northern kingdom of Israel, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in the Galilee of the Gentiles. What is God saying here? Well, in the past, I humbled you, Israel, because you sought after other gods. And God brought His discipline upon them and chastised them. And it was a time of gloom because they had forsaken the Lord. They were not being faithful to Him. And they were distressed. And God humbled them. But here in this text He says, But yet I have for you a hope, a time that you shall be honored. Now keep your place there in Isaiah and turn with me, please, over to Matthew. Matthew chapter 4. Jesus had just recently heard that uh, uh, John had been placed in prison. And he left Nazareth. And he goes up to the city of Capernaum, which is who sits just on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. He went up there and he began his ministry there. There in this same area that Isaiah spoke about 700 years previously. And these verses were fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 14. That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet saying... Here it is, verses from Isaiah, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, this Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region of the shadow of death, a light has done. We see here that the Lord Himself fulfilled this prophecy of 700 years in the past. He goes into this land of Galilee and He ministers. And Jesus was known as the one that came from the land of Galilee, Galilee because that's where His home base predominantly was. Often He would stay in Peter's house as a home base and stay with Peter and minister in this region. And He came to bring Israel that light a light has dawned. He was dispelling the gloom. As the Word of God says, in Him was light. And His life was the light of men. And the light is shown in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. 
Yes, this prophecy was fulfilled. We look on there in uh, back to Isaiah chapter 9 in verse 2. In Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 2, the people who had walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shone. A glorious prophecy about the one who was to come. And in verse 6, our text this morning, we're going to look at some of the nuances of this one who was to come. And in this verse, we have seven descriptions of the Messiah in the Hebrew. The one who was to come. The anointed one. Seven descriptions in the Greek of the Christ. The one who was to come. First of all, there in verse 6, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, For unto us, look at this, look at this, for unto us, a child is born. Put yourself back in Isaiah's day. 700 years before Christ, a nation in, in turmoil, somewhat of a civil war, all the other nations around, Syria and Assyria, looking upon this people to devour the children of God. And the Lord says, here's a great hope. A child is to be born. Don't you know that this prophecy crossed a few rabbis' eyes trying to understand the significance of a child? What? A child? Did not heads shake? Wait a minute. We have a great need. Nation in peril. A child is Always the Word of God says the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. This is the way God was to redeem Israel. He sent forth a child. Such a, such a humble beginning. This son of the carpenter. This one who came from a blue-collar family. From a mother who was very pious and godly, but yet an unknown virgin Jewish girl. His birth was announced gloriously by the angel of the Lord to shepherds. Those, that outcast group of society. Yes, the message was announced to them that you should go and see the one that is born. And where is he? He's in a feeding trough. There. Bethlehem. And even as Jesus grew up, what was He like? Well, the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 53 says that He had no particular stately form or no splendor. There was nothing about Jesus' physical appearance that would uh, cause you to look twice in His direction. He was not like a Saul that was a head and shoulders taller than anybody else. There was nothing about him that would draw one to him. The prophet Isaiah goes on to say that he came and yet we did not esteem him. 
for who he was. We looked away. Who was he? What was his reason for coming? He was misunderstood by Israel by and large, and he's misunderstood today. We go about and we see the quaint, beautiful manger scenes. I like manger scenes. But you know, I think sometimes people look at just that major scene and they say, oh, isn't that nice? And they think, well, kind of pie in the sky. They don't understand the reason for which He came. <coughs> the glorious reason. You know, I think about those shepherds that went to go see Jesus 2,000 years ago. And they spoke of glorious things. You know, in the Word of God, we don't have the, all the complete things that those shepherds must have said to those gathered around Jesus. But the Lord revealed to those lowly shepherds glorious things. And even after Jesus was born, Mary, though a very godly Jewish woman, young teenager, as she wrote glorious things about the Messiah when the angel of the Lord revealed to her in her song or in her Magnificat, glorious things she wrote. And yet, she didn't even glimpse the glory and the majesty that was in her son. After the shepherds departed, the Word of God says that Mary treasured all these things that the shepherds said in her heart. And she pondered the things of God that the shepherds had spoken. Wow. Lord. A child is born. Speaking of His absolute humanity, that He came down here, He left the glories of heaven to dwell among us, to take upon human flesh. Fully man. He knows all of the things that we go through and struggle with. He was fully man. Then notice, secondly, the text says that a son is given. He's given. Well, who was he given? By whom was he given? It had to be the Father, God the Father. He gave the Son. Well, then where did he come from? He didn't come from the earth. He came from the heavenly glory. So this speaks of the very deity of Christ, that He was fully God, as well as being fully man. And back in Isaiah, God said, yes, I'm going to give you a sign. Ahaz said, I, don't, I will not seek a sign from the Lord. But the Lord said, I'm going to give you a sign. And in Isaiah chapter 7 and chapter 8, God said to Ahaz and the nation of Israel, because they were facing an impending doom. As I mentioned, they were on the brink of civil war. Syria had allied with Israel, and they were getting ready to come down against Judah and destroy them. And lo and behold, the nation of Judah had allied with the, the horrible world power of Assyria. You see, they were on the brink of, of battle, and the nation was in duress. And the Lord said to Ahaz, the children of Israel, I'm going to give you a sign. And the sign was that the prophet Isaiah and his wife 
were going to have a child. And this nation that was getting ready to attack the southern kingdom Judah, which was Assyria, I mean, which was Syria and Israel, would be plundered before this young child that was to come. By the name, by the way, his name was Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Before this boy grew up and and was of the age to discern what was right and wrong, to have a moral compass, this nation was going to be plundered. That God was going to intervene. That was the promise that God was going to do this. And it came about just as the Lord said it was going to happen. And his his personal name was given to us in Isaiah chapter 8 in verse 1. You like that name? Maher Shalal Hashbaz. If I ever had another son, I would like to name him Maher Shalal Hashbaz. I like that name. But that was his personal name. But the Lord said in Isaiah chapter uh, 7 and 14 concerning this promised child, this child that was going to be assigned to Israel, that God was going to intervene for Israel, He said in verse 14, Therefore the Lord Himself, Isaiah 7 14, will give you a sign. God's going to give you a sign. And that is, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call His name Emmanuel. What was, he, what was he saying? First of all, the nation of Israel. God says, I'm going to intervene with you. I am giving you a sign. I am not going to allow Judah to be destroyed because it is through Judah that the Messiah is to come. I'm going to intervene and I'm going to give you a sign. And that when you see this boy born and you see him growing up, by the time you see this, the northern kingdom will be devastated. Syria as well. And this boy's name, his title shall be called Emmanuel, because I am with you, Israel. I will not forsake you. And His name shall be called Emmanuel. God with us. Now let's fast forward in the New Testament. Back to Matthew. Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, you will recall that Joseph was betrothed to Mary. Joseph finds out that Mary is pregnant. Because Joseph loved her so much, he was of a mind to have her put away secretly. Didn't want to make a big deal out of it, decided to put her away. And in those times, a betrothal was almost synonymous with marriage and would require required a a bill of divorcement. This is what Joseph was going to do. But the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, and he said to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 20, Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. You see, what we have there never happened before, never has happened since. It was miraculous work of God whereby, according to the Word of God in Luke, that the Holy Spirit was to come upon Mary and the power of the Most High God was to overshadow her in order that the one that was born from her was to be the Holy One, the Son of God. 
The Lord miraculously preserved Jesus, that child that was born. He was also the son that was given, that he was God. He was the Holy One. He was preserved, preserved miraculously by the power of the Holy Spirit from the sinful nature of man, the miraculous work of God. This Holy One is to be born, will be called the Son of God. So the Lord said, don't be afraid to take Mary unto you as your wife. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled by the prophet, and that's the prophet Isaiah, which said, verse 23, Matthew chapter 1, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God be with us. God's with us. Wow. Wow. That's glorious. Isn't that just beyond imagination? Ah, yes, the first child that was to come from Isaiah and his wife was a sign that God was going to be with Israel and He was going to protect Israel. But oh, it finds its glorious fulfillment in the fact that God was with His people. And He was came to redeem His own people by this child that was born. This Holy One that was the Son of God. Oh yes. For unto us a Son is given. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Gave His That whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Then Isaiah says concerning this One who is to come, this, this glorious One, back to our text in Isaiah 9-6, that third stick there, and the government, shall be upon His shoulders. In Psalm chapter 2 and verse 8, the Word of God says that the, the Heavenly Father has given to His very Son all the nations of the world and, 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 and as His inheritance, the earth and all that is in them. Yes, indeed, He owns the cattle on a thousand hills and far beyond that. He is Lord of everything. And that has been given to the Son. As he is the sovereign ruler. And this is what Nebuchadnezzar had to learn, was it not? That the Most High is the one who rules in the kingdoms of, kingdoms of men and gives dominion to whomsoever He will. And that all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does. The Lord does according to His will in the armies of the heavens and among the inhabitants of the earth, so that no one can stay His hand or restrain Him or say to Him, What have you done? He shall be the one that shall reign over everything. Look at Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. Of the increase of His government, and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, in order to establish it and establish it with judgment and justice 
from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform it. You see, who is He? He is the reigning sovereign of the world. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform that. Now what's that talking about there? The zeal of the Lord of hosts. The, the word there is uh, the word Jehovah Sabaoth, which means that He is the Lord of all the heavenly armies. And it also implies that He is the Lord of all earthly armies. In effect, that He is the sovereign. This is what Nebuchadnezzar said, wasn't it? That He is the one who rules in the army of heaven and among all of the inhabitants of the earth. That's what this word Lord Sabaoth means. This, this Lord of all the hosts. In other words, as it is translated in some texts, He is the Lord Almighty over everything. The sovereign reigning Lord that reigns over all. In Psalm uh, chapter 2 and verse 6 we have the words where the Father, God the Father is speaking, and He says, Yet I have set my King, referring to His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the Lord said, way back in Psalms, Yet I, God says, I have set my King upon my holy hill of Zion. He is the one that I have established His perfect rule, and He shall reign. Now turn with me to Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is a superb messianic psalm. And it concerns the very powerful reign of the Lord Himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at Psalm 118. Let's begin with verse uh, 21. The psalmist says, I will praise you, for you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Undoubtedly, this was a, a prophecy of the coming Christ. That He would be the stone which the builders rejected. And He was, in fact, the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it was, in fact, marvelous in our eyes. So when you, when you hear that, uh, the preacher get up on Sunday morning and say, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us be glad and rejoice in that. Indeed, we ought to do that. But what day is He talking about? This is the, the day of Messiah's reign. The day of the Messiah's rule. That He will come. He will be rejected by men. Yet He's chosen by God. And precious according to what Peter says in his epistle. He is the one that was to reign above all. Now, as we think about this child. Yet this son. The one who rules. We see all of these things brought together in Revelation 
chapter 12. We missed uh, Brother Robert last Sunday, last Thursday night, when we were studying the book of Revelation. We got it all figured out. But uh, we get to Revelation uh, chapter uh, 12, and we see all of these things combined. Look there in Revelation chapter 12, and we'll begin with verse 4. And the dragon, illustrative of Satan himself, he stood before the woman who was ready to give birth. Now, who is this woman? The woman is, well, definitely uh, Mary, but Israel, who was ready to give birth and to devour her child as soon as it was born. You know, as soon as King Herod got word that Jesus was to be born, he sent out a decree to kill all babies under two years old. This was the work of Satan through, through Herod, uh, the prophecy concerning this, looking back. And then verse 5, And she bore a male child who was to do what? This male child was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. He was the one who was to come and rule. Even though he was the one whom the builders had rejected, Israel rejected him, they esteemed him not as the Messiah, he was to rule even though he was rejected by and large by the nation of Israel. Then her child was caught up to God and to His throne. There you have the ascension of Christ. After He, he finishes His work, He ascended back into glory. Turn back with me now again to Psalm chapter 2. And verse 8. Again, this is the Father speaking to the Son. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. You will reign over all. The government shall be upon your shoulder. You will reign over all the armies of heaven and over all the affairs of men. And the end of the earth shall be your possession. So we see these glorious truths here. From Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, that he was indeed fully human. He was that child that was born, but he was also fully divine. He was a son that was given. And the government was to be upon his shoulders. He was the Lord Sabaoth. He was the ruler of all rulers. Now, we look at a, uh, a few more elements here in, in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 9. And we see four more descriptions of who Christ was to be. And among these four descriptions, we see two elements that are given in each description. Predominantly a noun and an adjective as to who the coming Messiah was to be. Now, in your New King James text there that we all have, you see the word wonderful, comma, and counsel. That, that very well could be the case. That he is mentioned here as both being wonderful and being a counselor. But I tend to take these, these words together because all of the other descriptions in this particular, particular text are given together. He is a wonderful counselor. He is also 
two descriptions, abiding God. He is everlasting Father, and He is Prince of Peace. Oh, my friend, He is in fact the one that was to come as a wonderful counselor. A wonderful counselor. What an encouragement that should be to us. Look in Isaiah chapter 11 in verse 2. Again, a prophecy about the Messiah that was to come. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon Him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and of might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Christ came and He exemplified these truths that in fact He was that wonderful counselor. He knew to say to Nicodemus, although he was a very religious man, a very learned man, in order to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. He didn't condemn that woman of Samaria that he met at the well. But he said that those that are true worshipers of God will worship God in spirit and truth. She, he, Jesus knew all there was to know about her, and yet He counseled with her, sensitive to her. And she went back and, and told uh, all the people that I've just met a man who knows everything about me. And yet Jesus was kind to her. He did not condemn the woman that was con- caught in adultery. Yet He said to those around Him as He counseled with them, you who are without sin, you cast the first stone at her. You see, he was a gracious and compassionate and loving counselor. I love the words from Isaiah chapter 42. Look with me, please, to Isaiah chapter 42. What kind of ministry would this Jesus have? In Isaiah chapter 42, regarding his title here as a servant. Look at verse 2. He will not cry out nor raise his voice. He didn't come with a lot of pomp and circumstances and drawing attention to himself and, and yelling loudly. No, he didn't do that. He didn't come in that fashion. Nor would he even cause his voice to be heard in the street. Here again, we think this is the child that was born. But look at verse 3. A bruised reed. He Those who are crushed by problems. Those that are weighed down by the heavy burdens of the miseries of this life. The broken. The heartache. He didn't come to break those. And those that continue reading there. And the smoking flax. He will not quench. You want to just, just think of a, of a candle. It's, it's not burning brightly. It's just barely flickering. Just a little bit of life in it. People are like that. People that are hurting so bad, they're barely making it. Again, you hear about people that just the burdens of this world bear down on them so greatly they can't can't hardly take it. And this is the time of the year where many, many people commit suicide because they have no hope. And yet he's, he's come not to, to quench those that are barely getting by. No, he came to give them life. He came to give them hope. He came as the light of the world. He came to give his perfect counsel to those who
who are the cast down, those who are the poor in spirit, those who are the broken in heart. And then he sent, as he as he ascended into heaven, what did he say? He was going to send the, the blessed counselor to come after he goes away. The one, the Holy Spirit, the one who is the helper, the comforter, the one that will bring counsel. So the, he continues his ministry today by the Spirit of Christ. He continues his ministry today through us as we dwell in the presence of God and live according to the Holy Spirit. So he's the wonderful counselor. And he's also mentioned here as the mighty God. Look at that in Isaiah chapter 6. He's a wonderful counselor, but he's also, who is he there? He is the mighty God. You can't get much plainer than this, can you? We've already seen that his name was called Emmanuel, which means God with us. We see his see him in his perfect humanity, and we also see him in his absolute divinity, his divine nature, as the mighty God. You remember that. After Jesus was raised from the dead, He appeared with His disciples without Thomas being present. And the disciples said that we've seen the Lord. He's been raised again. And Thomas said, I will not believe until I place my fingers in His hands and feel the nail prints. I will not believe until I place my hand in His riven side. I will not believe. Well, about a week later, Jesus appeared to the, the, to the disciples with Thomas being present. And He said, Thomas, come here. Touch my hands. Feel the nail prints. Reach your hand in my side. And Thomas was devastated that he had not believed. He believed then. And he said, what did he say? He said, my Lord and my God. Doesn't get any plainer than that. That's who he was. He was the mighty God. The mighty God. I read the verses this morning that John described this one who was to come, the Messiah, the Christ, that he was the mighty God in the beginning, before time existed. In the beginning was the word that the word, word there is the Greek word for logos, which which means that he was the eternal one. The eternal God. In the beginning was the Word, Christ. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. With the Father. But he says, and the Word was God. Can't get any plainer than that. He was God. In our verse for the day, and He was made flesh. Came. He took upon Himself human form. And He was made flesh. And we beheld His glory, the mighty God in flesh. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This mighty God humbled Himself, left the glories of heaven, walked among men, endured our hardships. He knew what it was like to be hungry, to be cold, and to be wet, and to be rejected by men. Yet He was the mighty God who came to deliver us from ourselves. The mighty God. And the scripture says it's also the everlasting Father. Now this is interesting, isn't it? That the one who was to come, the Messiah, is called the everlasting Father. And you say, wait a minute, I, I, I thought God 
was the Father and Jesus was the Son. That, that is correct. But by this description, it does not mean that the first and second persons of the Trinity are the same. There's, we worship one God. He exists in three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they are separate and distinct from one another. And yet they all have the same essence as God. So, this raises a little question for us. Well, the answer is, is quite clear. The, the word Father here can mean many different things in the Hebrew. It does, it, it can mean a literal Father. Or it can also be refer, referring to a grandfather. We see this oftentimes in the Scriptures. Or it can be referred to as an ancestor or a ruler or simply a teacher or an, or an instructor. Instructor, Or as one who watches over people as does the, the shepherd from Isaiah chapter 40. What Isaiah is trying to say to us here concerning the everlasting Father is simply this, that He will come and He will have one. He will be a God of absolute compassion. We should not find this strange because the the uh, the Lord Jesus had the same character, did He not, as the eternal Father? The Scriptures tells us that Christ was also the Creator of this world, as was the Father. That Christ is indeed the Sustainer of this universe, as was the Father. That Christ is the source of our salvation, as was the Father. So here, here we have the same thing. That He has the same fatherly love and compassion as did the Father. We think of a perfect earthly Father as one who will not forsake us. One who, that will always stand with us. David said, even if my father and my mother forsake me, the Lord will take care of me. He will stand with me. That's what we think about as a father figure, do we not? One who's strong, one who's knowledgeable, one who's good, one who's kind, and one who is peaceful. Even so, the Lord Jesus Christ is a glorious, everlasting Father. Turn with me to Psalm chapter 45. <coughs> Again, we have a, a prophetic psalm here about the coming Messiah. Look at Psalm 45, beginning with verse 6. Now this, in this particular context, this is a praise to the king that was coming uh, at his marriage. He was a groom king. And the psalmist says, as he asks his blessing upon the groom king, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the king was thought to be the human representative of the, the reigning God, okay? Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You love wickedness and you you love righteousness and you hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. He's anointed you king. Gloriously, this may have been referring to Solomon, that he was the groom king, and God had anointed him, okay? But, this is so interesting, the writer to the Hebrews 
takes this word and he applies it to God the Father speaking to God the Son. So God the Father says to his Son, first person of the Trinity, the Father, he says to his Son, the one who is to be Jesus, he says to him, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. That scepter of righteousness this is the scepter, is the scepter of your kingdom. Here we see it again. He, the government is upon his shoulder. He is ruling. He's the sovereign. He's the all-powerful one. And he is what? He's God. He's God. So I showed you all that just to show you this. If he is depicted as the one who has all the attributes of God, he also has the fatherly compassion of the heavenly father. And then last of all, in Isaiah 9, 6, that last little stick there, he is depicted as the one who is the prince of peace. The prince of peace. Look over again to Psalm 118. Very interesting text. Try to stay with me. Get a little crowded. Uh, Prophetic of the Messiah who was to come, Psalm 118, in verse 25. The psalmist said, Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, and send now prosperity. What was he saying? Well, like the context of Isaiah chapter 9, the Israelites often struggled, and they cried out to God for deliverance, for salvation. This is what the psalmist is praying here. Save now, Lord. Send that time of, of peace and prosperity. Help your covenant people, Lord. And then he says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. Well, again, he was hopeful. He was expecting. This was a prophetical cry that the Lord would help, that he was saved. And the word there in the Hebrew, the very first two words of verse 25, save now, is the word Hosanna. The word Hosanna. Now, does that remind you of anything? Well, let's fast forward again to the New Testament, to Matthew chapter 2. Excuse me, Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21, we refer to this... Uh, uh, day is uh, Palm Sunday when Jesus entered into Jerusalem. Matthew chapter 1 and, and verse 9. The multitudes who went before and those who followed, followed Jesus, they cried out and this is what they said. You see there were, if not quoting, they were thinking about that song. This one who would come the one that would come and give them peace, to come and give them a time of prosperity, to, to, to uh, give them deliverance. They cried out, Hosanna! Or save, save now to the Son of David. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Salvation comes from you. This was their cry concerning Jesus. He came to bring the way of peace. Then they hailed Him as the Messiah. Hosanna 
to the one who comes. And yet that that song of praise, that crying out of praise later turned to rejection, did it not? Probably by another crowd. But it was the same people who chose to reject Jesus. They chose to save the murderer of Barabbas and let him live. And they cried out all the more, crucify. The one that came to give them peace. They crucified him and let the murderer go. And Peter said as he was preaching there in Solomon's portico in Acts chapter 3, that the Jewish leaders and the people chose to kill the prince. They killed the prince of life and let a murderer go free. Ah, oh, but he didn't match up to what we expected. No, he did not. He came in a way that we would never imagine, didn't he? A little child. Born in the man. So human. And yet, fully God. He came not to usher in political peace and prosperity. He came to give you peace in your soul before God. As we think about Christmas, I pray that everyone in here gets this message. Because this is the true message of Christmas. We look beyond the manger scene of Isaiah 9. We look at Isaiah chapter 53. Let's just look at one verse here from Isaiah chapter 53. Again, a prophecy. 700 years before Christ was to come. In Isaiah chapter 53. Look at verse 5. But He, but He, the Messiah, second person of the Trinity, the Christ, but He prophecy again. 700 years before time. But He was wounded for our transgressions. Wounded. Crucified. Not because He was a sinner. Not because He deserved it. But He was killed for you. He was wounded for you. You who deserve to be killed and to die and to go to hell. He was wounded for you. He suffered the wrath of Almighty God. He bore the wrath of God because He was bearing our sins on that tree. And God could not look upon sin. And He bore the punishment that we deserve. That's why He came. This God-man who suffered on the cross, He was wounded for us. And He was bruised because of our iniquities. He was crushed by the holy wrath of God that was poured out upon Him when we deserved the full fury and wrath of God. Jesus bore that on the tree. 
Yes, the, the suffering of the nails and the cross and the humiliation and being spit upon and being whipped was horrible. But that was nothing compared to what he endured. He endured the wrath of the Father because he died as our perfect substitute. What we deserved, he endured. You see, he was chastised. And why was he chastised? Look at this verse. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. We deserve to be chastised. We deserve to haul all that he went through. And yet he was chastised. This prince of peace was chastised for us. That's the gospel. That's the Christmas message. That He came. And the Scripture says it is through His stripes that we are healed. Through His atoning work that He shed His blood. The perfect, righteous Son of God who never sinned, never had a, a, a sinful thought, never did a sinful deed. The perfect, righteous, holy Lamb of God suffered for you in order that he might cleanse you by His blood and say to you, my sinner friend, though you have sinned, the very righteousness of God is your substitute and you can be forgiven because Christ has died. Brothers and sisters, you may have been in church all your life, but you don't understand anything about Christmas unless you have trusted in the Christ of Christmas that you believe this glorious gospel, that you confess that Christ has come in the flesh and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead as your perfect substitute. I said earlier in Deuteronomy chapter 30, folks, that as God said through Moses to the children of Israel, you don't have to cross on the other side of the sea. You don't have to ascend into heavens to find and to know the Word of God. Well, the Apostle Paul takes up those same words from Deuteronomy chapter 30 as he says to us today, we do not have to ascend into the heavens, nor do we have to ascend into the very abyss of this earth. We don't have to have some kind of mystical, wild, glorious experience. No, he said, but the, the Word of God is in your midst and God has revealed it to you. It is on, it is on your tongue right now. And so in your tongue, it's in your heart right now. You've heard the truth of the Gospel today. Amen. And He says that if you will confess with your mouth, believe that Christ has come and He shed His blood, gave His life for you, and then He rose again from the dead, then you'll be saved. And some of you here today are not saved. You've not believed this Gospel. I implore you, I can't do anything for you. And my friend, if you will trust in Christ, if you will believe this glorious gospel, you can leave here today and you can be saved. And you know that you know God. And you can have the most glorious Christmas that you've ever had in all of your life because you can say, I praise the Lord. I now know, I believe that He came to save me and to forgive me. And you'll have the most glorious Christmas that you've ever had in all of your life. I'm not saying everything's going to be a bowl of roses and everything's going to be... i got my metaphors mixed. A bowl of cherries and a basket of roses. But you'll understand why He came. You'll know who He is. 
but he is all that Isaiah said he was. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. For those of us who know Christ, may we glorify Him in this new year. May we worship Him in spirit and truth. May we understand that although things are not made many ways not like we would love for them to be, praise God, He has come to take away that gloom. And we are more than victors through Him who loved us and gave Himself for us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, your mercy is good. We spoke about high and lofty things today, Lord. Glorious things. Thank you, Lord, that you've made us recipients of your grace. And I pray today, Lord, that if there are those that are here today and that do not know you, they will believe this gospel. And they will be saved. And they will experience the joy of Christ and the forgiveness of their sins. Oh God, may your Holy Spirit have your way in each of our hearts today. Pray this in Christ's name. Today, if you're if you're here, maybe you would confess that you really do not know Christ. You want to know more. You can believe right now where you're sitting. Trust Christ. You don't need a preacher to pray with you necessarily. You don't need any of those things. You just have to come before the Lord. Repentance, turning from your sin, simply trusting in Christ. Pray to do that if you've never done that. But if you would like to talk further to myself or Pastor Ryan, we're here for you. We're here for you. And all we do rejoice in the fact that as Christians, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's stand together and sing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow.